as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 raged through Christmas of 2021. Calls were made across the West for a return to the lockdowns that most countries had only emerged from the previous summer. The popular show took a different approach and collected a group of academics to summarise the harms and collateral damage accrued during COVID lockdowns, a record of human blight that tended to be ignored or minimised by defenders of maximal COVID containment measures. For Christmas 2022, the popular show continues our ongoing work looking critically at COVID measures from a left-wing, democratic and populist perspective. If you would like to support our work and get access to our new COVID-critical mini-series in its entirety, please get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. The popular show would like to thank the charity Collateral Global for their support, about which a few words now. What happened in the Global South is unconscionable, and that's why we've set up this charity Collateral Global to try and document what happened in the Global South, as well as, of course, everywhere else in the world because it's important that we remember the cost of living crisis now is a direct result of these measures and who does that affect? It affects the young, it affects the poor. These are the people we, we want to protect. These are the people we want to give hope to. Welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. I'm thrilled to be joined at last, actually, by Jay Bhattacharya. He is a Stanford professor, has been one of the main dissenting voices on COVID measures uh, all the way through the pandemic. Uh, Jay, we've had some of your your co-writers and collaborators and other confederates on The Popular Show before, but this is the first time meeting you, so we're, we're really pleased you agreed to come on. Well, thank you, James, for having me. Really honoured to be here. Uh, you've had an exciting couple of months, and, and we'll get on to the, uh, the, the the drama and the revelations of uh, of how you were censored uh, in the pre-Elon Musk days of, of Twitter uh, later on. But I, I wanted to jump into kind of where the scientific debate is right now. Uh, I mean, you've been a, a sort of folk devil figure for, for quite a lot of people in the uh, uh, medical establishment and in academia who have all the way through COVID-19 never heard of a, uh, a prevention measure that they haven't liked. I, I, I wanted to know from your point of view what it is the um, kind of COVID maximalists uh, and the, the, the people who are most alarmist on this topic want now. Why, why, are, they, why are they attacking you? What, what don't they like about what uh, you've argued over the years, and what kind of measures do they want to see in place now? Well, I think uh, the, the the problem throughout the pandemic has been essentially a jettisoning of basic evidence-based standards, scientific evidence-based standards, right? So before the pandemic, if you wanted to implement a population-wide measure, you actually needed to have extraordinary evidence in favor of that measure, randomized evidence, for instance, in, in cases where it's possible, um, certainly like some 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 evidence uh, that convinces even skeptical people that it was appropriate along and the evidence had to be balanced with uh, an assessment of the of the harms of the intervention right so closing schools is a great example of this uh, closing schools 
there was no evidence at all that it, that it would have a an appreciable impact on the spread of the pandemic. And early evidence emerged from Iceland and Sweden and elsewhere that keeping schools open or, or the children that the children um, that that were not like super spreaders in the same way as, as some adults might be. Um, that early evidence con convinced much of Europe to have a much more relaxed policy with regard to school closures. And then the other side of the coin, which is that school closures harm children, that was incontrovertible. That was evident yeah. from decades of fantastic social science research about how uh, how important investment uh, schools are for our, for our societies, for our kids. You know, you, you close schools, you consign children to a lifetime of, of worse health and lower life expectancy. Um, that was clear from before the pandemic. You put those two together, we should never have closed schools. And yet, so many COVID max limits were were entirely in favor of it, thinking that that was the obvious thing to do. And only now were they coming back and saying, "Oh, yeah, there were all these costs." Um, we we replaced our basic standards of evidence-based medicine with this this idea of Swiss cheese, where any slice you don't have to show that it works. It can be full of holes, and you still want to implement it regardless of the harms. Um, so, so where are we now? Um, I, I think uh, the, the, there's two kind of groups that I'm seeing on the COVID maximalist side. So one is the set of people who I think are honestly, you know, ashamed of what they're what they what they were, were pushing for. Uh, looking at the harms of it, they're saying, "Gosh, I really never wanted this." Um, and you know, so, some of them are saying saying that forthrightly, but m many are just trying to move on or trying to uh, trying to say that they uh, that you know, at, was, given it was known at the time, we had no other choice. I mean, I'm not all that interested in that fight, except to to, to make sure that we don't ever do these kinds of policies again. Um, you know, in, in the pandemic plans, uh, the, the, there is still some group of people uh, with a increasingly sm smaller audience. That are still shrieking uh, about the, the the harms of of, uh, of the devastating harms of long COVID or or whatever in order to justify some kind of continuing measures. And what they've landed on is masks and uh, ventilator uh, upgrades and things like that. Uh, I mean, I, I think that a lot of that is still fear mongering and it's, and it's still harmful. But at least the policies that they're implementing are not nearly as harmful as the lockdowns they were. Uh, the, the, the policies that are mm. advocating are not nearly as harmful as the lockdowns they were advocating before, um, and so I'm just I'm 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 a, I'm a little less concerned about them, and the, the audience that they have is much smaller than it once was. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and, and actually that's that's very generous to say that the the cohort who are still maximal maximalists uh, are, are indeed at least advocating slightly more modest things than the the wholesale. Uh, um, vaccine mandates and, and, and wholesale lockdowns and school closures uh, uh, that they were still calling for um, less than a year ago. Um, you, you must have seen um, uh, this in, in Nature last month. I, I, I thought that this was kind of revealing. A, a multinational Delphi study, uh, a diverse multidisciplinary panel of 386 academics seeking consensus statements on what to do to minimise the ongoing harm of COVID. But even here, I, I found something in the language quite revealing, really. I'll I, I just um, throw you and the, the listeners a, a few examples of the uh, the 41 
consensus statements and 57 recommendations that, that these uh, scientists were and NGO <laughs> non-scientists were proposing. Um, one was that the volume and velocity of information during the COVID-19 pandemic made it difficult for people to assess the accuracy of information. Governments have inconsistently counteracted false information in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. The world has not implemented an evidence-based, globally agreed-upon set of minimum COVID-19 pandemic response standards. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has catalyzed opportunities for rapid innovation in digital health solutions throughout the care continuum. I'll, I'll just stop there because the, the, the first three I read out, we, we can maybe talk about the language, but I think it's pretty obvious what, what each of those mean. Um, the idea that COVID-19 has catalyzed opportunities for rapid innovation in digital health solutions, that I, I feel like suddenly the um, the marketing people have stepped in to write that one. What, 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 what do they mean by that? Catalyzed opportunities for rapid I, I, innovation? I think they, they mean that you, you no longer need to go see your doctor in person. You can just see them over, over the video. And that, oh, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, all I wanted to point out about those other ones was it's just interesting that even in this kind of attempt to sort of bring people together and make these new, neutral sounding statements, just the sheer weight that's put on like policing alleged misinformation, despite what we've seen, uh, uh, which has been a real kind of crushing of debate and crushing of academic norms of debate or even media norms of debate. Um, and then also th this way in which they're still going back to the idea that there needs to be a globally agreed upon norm, a, a, a pandemic treaty we might infer is meant there, as opposed to what, what should have been going on all along and what you've been advocating, which is highly local solutions that draw on the resources of particular communities and draw on you know the knowledge of of, of how um illnesses are actually affecting people in local areas i i, I don't know I, I i i feel like lessons haven't been learned frankly when i'm reading uh, a lot of the literature on this today well you know it's funny that that nature consensus statement they didn't invite me they didn't invite mm -hmm. Sinatra. There, there are a very large number of of people uh scientists prominent scientists who uh, opposed the lockdowns? They could just look at the Great Barrington Declaration. We listed a bunch of bunch of them. Um, the, it's the and consensus is very easy to reach when you only invite people that agree with you. Um, and you know, you listen to you what you read, uh, James, is really interesting, right? What they're concerned about is that there was dissent, that the governments didn't suppress that dissent hard enough. Yeah. That that uh, that that it, that 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 the, the uh, that somehow they were in sole possession of the truth, the scientific truth. Uh, beyond questioning such that it was it was you know anyone who disagreed with them must ipso facto be a bad actor um you know that kind of of idea is essentially the death of public confidence in science you know when so for instance when tony fauci got up and said that he if you criticize him you're not simply questioning a man you're criticizing science itself I mean, well think about that think about the hubris of that is that really something someone that the public wants ruling over them um, I don't think that will sell very well. And, and I think, um, you know, I think that there's a lot at stake here, not just the reputations of those people who made all these ridiculous, horrible recommendations that turned out so poorly. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 what's at stake is the public confidence in science and public confidence in public health. If public health and, and scientific leaders do not acknowledge that they made catastrophic errors in their recommendations during the pandemic, leading to, to, to harm to every poor person on the face of the earth to children to vulnerable people and did not protect 
the most vulnerable to COVID in it either. Well, I mean, people are not going to trust science, scientific leaders. They're not going to trust political leaders who follow them, and they're not going to trust public health. Uh, and that will be very bad for the public in the long run, maybe in the short run. What about long COVID? You you, you mentioned before that, that that is kind of one of the, I suppose, one of the innovations of the of the last year is that we've heard a lot more about long COVID uh, uh, from uh, people who are continuing to advocate for COVID containment measures. Um, I, I mean, th this is interesting. Notably, it's it's uh, it's got the status as the the first um, the first condition or illness that has been um, has its origins in self-diagnosis on social media. That, that was something that was being being said positively. Oh, isn't it great that we've democratized health so much that people are diagnosing themselves? Uh, today, it seems to be um, always kind of brought up, uh, as far as I can see, as a kind of blackmail. You know, if you don't agree to masks and masking children, if you don't agree to vaccine mandates, then everyone's going to have long COVID. What's your assessment of it? And has it changed over the over the years since we first started hearing about long COVID? Yeah. So uh, let me, uh, before I give my assessment, let me just talk about the, the what, what long COVID actually means for policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the key thing is, is that we actually do not have a technology from stopping you from getting COVID. I, unless you're super rich and misanthropic and you can afford to, to isolate yourself from all humanity forever, which with a very vanishingly small number of people can actually do without severe damage to their mental health, you, you're not, you're not going to prevent COVID from happening. You will get COVID at some point. It's too infectious. It's too widespread. That's just a fact. So if you can't prevent COVID, how do you, and, and, and you believe long COVID is real, how do you prevent long COVID? Doing marginal efforts to try to prevent you from getting COVID may make you feel better in the short run, but it won't actually prevent you from getting COVID in the long run if you're if you're living anywhere near a reasonable life. Um, so I think the, 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 the presence or absence of long COVID does not change the calculus about lockdowns. They're still a bad idea. Um, the, 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 now let's talk about like the, 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 the evidence about long COVID itself. Uh, so, you know, first the, the context. Uh, there are other viral illnesses that produce um, lingering symptoms. Uh, uh, the probably the classic example is uh, Epstein-Barr virus and, and infectious mononucleosis, right? So mono produces, you know, we don't call it long mono, but like the, the, the extended mm -hmm. time of fatigue sometimes people get after they get mono. Um, it's not fun and, and, you know, it's, it's, but it does happen. It's just, we, 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 but we don't like shut down society to prevent mono. We don't, we don't tell people uh, to avoid, uh, avoid EBV at all costs. Um, and another example is, is influenza. Influenza also sometimes produces uh, long, uh, symptoms that, 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 that appear after the, uh, after the initial respiratory virus, viruses. My, my, my son, when he was little, actually got the flu, despite having had the, the, uh, the, the, the vaccine. Um, and a, a week or two later after he got the flu, he woke up and he couldn't move his legs. It turns out that there's a, a wow. phenomenon called benign myositis. That happens sometimes after the flu. I mean, I, you know, you can imagine as a parent and uh, as a doctor, I, had, I was thinking about the worst case scenarios. It turned out to be something much, much, not, not, not so bad. It was a, a, a temporary, essentially temporary uh, problem with muscles as a consequence of having the, had the flu, which goes away after a few days. So two days after, three days after we panicked about it, uh, he was walking around acting like a little kid again, no, no problem. Um, so there are these, uh, I mean, we don't call it the long flu, but those kinds of things can happen. 
after a viral infection. And yet with COVID, I think that it can happen. Like, so there are, for, for, for example, people who still don't know, still can't smell a year after they've had, uh, you know, they, they had COVID. That's long COVID. It turns out though, when you do studies that have control groups, sets of people who have never had COVID versus who had COVID, and then you track them over a year, um, many of the long COVID symptoms are so nonspecific that they show up in the people who didn't have COVID. You know, fatigue yeah. is an example. Um, so it, so there's so there's that. I think a lot of aspects of long COVID have to do with sort of attention that we're paying to our uh, to the, to the, to our health. The psychological harms, of the you know, sort of depression, anxiety from lockdowns create these these kinds of symptoms, even in people who never had COVID. Um, and uh, you know, the other the other aspect of it is really important is if you've had COVID and you went to the hospital or you were you know in an ICU and you recovered, that's going to take a long time to recover, no matter what, right? Um, so it's a complicated thing. I think it's a mix of real long COVID symptoms like loss of smell for a lo very long time, uh, symptoms that are uh, you know somatic like somatic in nature, so it's like ca caused by uh, not not exactly COVID, but worry about COVID. And then yeah. the third group is, you know, people who had a very, very severe case of COVID, they're going to take a long time to recover. I think one of the things that's disturbed me as a non-scientist about the shifting way uh, that long COVID has been spoken about and self-diagnosed and diagnosed and deployed is precisely that, that kind of abstracting of it as if it's a single thing when the diversity of, of, of symptoms and the diversity of kind of forms it seems to take in, in different people and in different, in, in different populations is so vast that it, it just seems like the, the height of a kind of uncontextual thinking, which really has been the, the kind of thinking that has marred the whole of the COVID response as far as I'm concerned. The, the, the fact that we just had all of these blanket measures, which no matter what the economy, the, 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 the climate, any other uh, uh, kind of factors of a, of a place or a country, everyone's got to have the exact same measures, no matter which age group, no matter what comorbidities, uh, morbidities, you, you still got to have the same uh, uh, treatment. To see that kind of, that same like lack of context channeled into um, the, 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 the discussion of a, of a disease, which, as you say, you don't even to have had to have had COVID in order to have uh, uh, um, symptoms that are very similar to 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 long COVID. Um, there's something of the same kind of ideology or, or thought process in a lot of our approach to vaccination. One of the, the accusations that, that's been made against the uh, the WHO and the Gates Foundation agenda uh, immediately before the COVID pandemic and, and during it is, is that uh, we've kind of lost this idea of public health as nurturing and community-based and drawing on both the context and the skill set and, and the contributions that individual communities and groups can, can make to health and instead have this kind of technocratic solutionism where this one single measure uh, has to be universally deployed uh, across the board. Um, how, how do you see the, the kind of um, the rise of the vaccine as the as the single solution to pandemics in general, and, and where do you feel we are now with the the role that vaccines have played in in this pandemic politically? 
Yeah. So, I mean, first, let's just let me comment on, on the on the preface to your question, and I, which I entirely agree with. This idea that we can have a technocratic solution that will work everywhere has been at the heart of the of, of much of the problems during COVID, uh, the, during the, during the pandemic, right? So, we uh, the World Health Organization essentially told did not strongly oppose closing schools around the world, and so so places that don't have that don't even have internet access really. They closed schools, you know, Uganda closed its schools and four and a half million children never came back, never actually went to school for yeah. two years. Um, I mean, it's just catastrophic generational inequality caused by this failure to uh, to acknowledge the, the basic fact you said, James, which is that uh, local place, lo localities have different resources, values and public health that doesn't acknowledge those and uh, work with those facts are going to do tremendous damage, especially this authoritarian top-down approach that we've taken to COVID. Uh, on the vaccines, I, I have to confess mixed feelings. So first, I, I, I think the vaccines were a tremendous scientific achievement. It, it, it was one of these things where I never expected to be able to, that scientists would be able to produce a vaccine at scale at such, so quickly during a pandemic. Um, the vaccines didn't turn out to be as effective as we expected them to be, uh, or, or at least some, some folks expected them to be, or, or even pushed them to be. The vaccines don't stop you from getting COVID and transmitting it, for instance. Um, I do believe the vaccines have have blunted the 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 harm of COVID, especially for the vulnerable elderly who faced a high risk of dying if they were to get COVID. If you had the vaccine, that 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 risk was reduced, which was I think a quite a good thing about the vaccines. So in that sense, I have I, I'm I'm very positive about vaccinations and even COVID vaccinations for for older people. Um, uh, on the other hand, the social uses of the vaccine have been tremendously bad. James, I think, um, so to, for instance, uh, we restricted people from traveling to places if they weren't vaccinated, as if they were unclean, not even acknowledging that if they'd had COVID and recovered, they actually, in, in a sense of, in the, in the sense of like likelihood of getting and spreading COVID were about the same status of vaccinated people, or maybe even better off than vaccinated people. Um, essentially, like it, it authorized a kind of xenophobia um, for foreign for, for foreign travels is still in the United States. You're not allowed to come in and visit the United States as a foreign traveler if you are not vaccinated. Why? I have no idea. It's, it's not as if foreign travelers are unclean and, and uh, unvaccinated foreign travelers are unclean. It just makes no sense. Just um, to jump in on that, I mean the the kind of bizarre like holding up of a mirror between, on the one hand, the 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 deplorable. Uh, kind of Trump side of America um, as against the supposedly good and open and cosmopolitan liberal uh, Democrat side. The, the, the fact that uh, it, it's precisely those good, open liberals who um, have been most supportive of border closures and vaccine passports and so on, it, it, it just, like, the, 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 uh, the symmetry is just too much for me. Trump closing, you know, <laughs> closing borders to Muslim countries and so on early in his presidency. And, and then the Biden administration, we have uh, advocacy of the same, but this time it's because of vaccines. Well, I just, I, I mean, I guess we're all sinful and that's, I mean, there's always something, right? Uh, but the other, the other aspect of the vaccines that has me troubled, um, what are we going to do in the next pandemic? Um, the vaccines, essentially, I think in the minds of people who were very optimistic about their development in 2020, were used as a justification to continue lockdown policies. Uh, the idea was like, well, if we just wait, I mean, this was one of the main arguments that we got against the, the, the Great Barrington Declaration. We wrote it in October of 2020, 
And people wrote, wrote saying, well, why don't we just wait until the vaccine, the vaccine's coming, the vaccine's coming, we should just stay locked down. Um, and, you know, of course, in those months, tremendous harm was done. The vaccines came and we still didn't lift the lockdowns. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the reality is that, uh, that the vaccines did not stop us from doing tremendous damage to, uh, to our societies with, with policies. And, the, and when the next pandemic hits, I think that exactly the same dynamic will happen because of this technology, the existence of this technology. Um, that's, not, that's, that's, you know, believe it or not, a fun voice, fun, fun sound in the background. I, 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 <laughs> it's, no, sorry about that. No, <laughs> There's daytime no. recording over here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think, uh, I think the, va the, the vaccines, if the vaccines are used as an excuse to lock down, uh, it will, it, they, it, on net, they will do net harm rather than good. If they're used as a way to like, uh, as soon as we can get, get them, protect vulnerable people, they do tremendous good. Um, if they're used to, ex as an excuse for lockdowns and ex as an excuse for, uh, for discrimination against people based, based on medical decisions, it's, it's, uh, it's on net socially harmful, I think. Um, and I think uh, the, the key thing is the scientific community has to come to terms with the fact that vaccines aren't magical. They're useful and worthwhile, but you have to understand what their limitations are, right? So this vaccine, I think very useful for older people because it protects against severe disease and death. This vaccine is not protective against getting infection and spreading it. So what justification was there ever for vaccine mandates or forcing people to lose their jobs or be socially ostracized because of the vaccines? There just never was one. Um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the scientific community, the public health community used the vaccines as a way for, to create social division, as opposed to using it as a medical tool to protect people, uh, who could benefit from it. And they want to do, I mean, I mean, the Biden administration has basically said that the, 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 the pandemic plan is lockdown and wait for a vaccine that that I mean, if you, you speak a lot nowadays, now so many more people agree with you uh, uh, than did before. You speak a lot about making sure uh, the crimes of lockdown don't happen again. But but that that is the official policy: lockdown and wait for a vaccine. So really, we we should be we should be fighting that argument every day now, uh, rather than waiting for the the next pandemic. And we are assured it's going to come uh, uh, to come round surely. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think they've, they've, the official policies develop the vaccines within 130 days. Mm -hmm. Unsaid is how do we get to that mm -hmm. point? Uh, with you know, what will happen is a lockdown. This, you can see the social dynamic that at, at play during COVID. Why would it not be repeated during the next pandemic? And you're absolutely right, James. We have to we have to work very hard now so that those policies are explicitly rejected, or else. Uh, and so we can point to it when when people are panicking and say, "Look, this was a bad." This is a bad idea where we shouldn't make this decision. When we were sober and more wise, we decided to reject it. Um, it's very hard during a pandemic, especially the earliest days when people are panicking, to, to uh, come to sober judgments. Um, and so what you have to do is rely on, uh, on the wisdom of the past, on, on, on detailed good planning that, that, makes, that, that details the problems with uh, things that you might be tempted to do that will end up being harmful. Um, in this case, we have learned a hard lesson during these, the last three years that the lockdowns really didn't stop at, uh, the disease from from, uh, from from spreading everywhere. That they caused tremendous harm that outweighed the good that they that they might have done in terms of delaying the disease for some people. Um, 
so I, I just I think that that's the that's that's the, we have to we have to put that into our pandemic plans. I'm going to work really hard to make sure that that happens. Um, it, as you can tell from as you said from that nature uh, the consent quote consensus evaluation, uh, not everybody is on on the same page. They 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 want to those those people who are writing that nature consensus statement want to basically put put to, to you know, sort of uh, etch lockdowns into the pandemic plan for now into eternity. I think a lot of people, even in 2020, will have listened to to you and listened to Sinatra Gupta uh, and others that we've had on on this show, and will have thought, well, what they're saying seems very sensible, and I, I don't feel comfortable with what's happening right now. But surely, if they were right, more people in in academia and in and high up in medicine would would come out and say so. Uh, how do you account for the fact that you did seem to be such minority voices in 2020? And and what would you say to people who still kind of have the perception, well, it seems like most medical people were for it, so it must have been right. What, what would your argument to them be? So I, I, I don't know about March 2020. I'll, I'll, I'll just note that in, in February of 2020, many, many of the voices that were in favor of lockdowns were writing pieces that calling for calm, calling for things that sounded very much like the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. Um, and the switch happened on a dime, mm -hmm. not based on any scientific evidence, but I think based on panic, uh, based on people, uh, sci scientists, top scientific bureaucrats looking at the Chinese example of the January 2020 lockdown, thinking that it was a great success, and then looking at the counterexample of the Italian uh, uh, situation in February 2020, thinking that was a great failure, and, argue, and thinking to themselves, well, if only we had locked down like China did, we would get the, the result that China had. I think that was a that was a great error uh, on the part of people who should have known better. Um, but what happened next was uh, was that if people had views that were in opposition to the the, the lockdowns, especially scientists, whether no matter how prominent. There was a, a, a tremendous effort to try to uh, demonize, smear anybody that spoke up. You could see it after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, right? So four days after we write the Great Barrington Declaration, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, writes to Tony Fauci, calling me, uh, Martin Kulldorff of Harvard University and Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University. She, they call, he called the three of us fringe epidemiologists. Uh, you know, I, I, so a friend of mine sent me a business card that has that on there because I think now fringe epidemiology is really much, much more uh, much more authoritative than the... Uh, than the, you've, than the you've reclaimed it. You've reclaimed the term. Um, uh, but yeah, but and then he called for devastating takedown of the premises of the de declaration. Um, and what happened next was essentially a, a propaganda campaign, a smear campaign. I mean, Sinatra and, and Martin and I were subject to, to uh, all kinds of of crazy attacks, as if I, as uh, the, the argument was somehow that I wanted to let the virus rip, when in fact what I was calling for was focused protection of vulnerable people, using resources creatively, locally to to, to achieve that. Um, and we offered a whole bunch of suggestions for that, and yet somehow we wanted to kill grandma. Um, the 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 rep the the what happened, and you know, the same thing happened in the UK. In Jeremy Farrar's book, he talks about working with Dominic Cummings about the problems caused by Sinetra. Uh, I mean, in effect, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think what happened was that uh, the, that many scientists actually agreed with us. It might even have been the majority of scientists by October 2020 agreed with us. 
Uh, but when they saw what happened to us at the hands of top scientific bureaucrats, powerful people who abuse their position and abuse their power, uh, they, they stayed silent. What, what happened was and that the top scientific bureaucrats in the world created an illusion of consensus in favor of their policies that never actually existed, at least certainly not did not exist in October of 2020 when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, it, rather than argue against the, the actual premises of the declaration, it, it, had they done so, they would have lost the argument because the scientific evidence favored us. Um, they, they instead engaged in a smear campaign to demonize the most prominent uh, proponents of the, an al the alternate view that we don't need lockdowns, we can use focus protection. Um, and then by that example, send a signal to other scientists to stay silent. It's especially pernicious because it was top scientific funders that did this. Those funders, it's not just that they control the money that, that, uh, that allows you to run experiments or whatnot, that's true, but it also control the social status of scientists, right? The National Institute of Health, I, I teach, at, uh, I'm a professor at a medical school, you know, at Stanford Medical School, I don't get tenure unless I have an NIH grant, a big big NIH grant. That's part of uh, what one of the major things that, that that was in my favor when they when I was considered for tenure. The social status of scientists depends on scientific funders approving them, top scientific funders approving them, um, like the NIH, like the Wellcome Trust. And when those leaders step in and say, "Oh gosh, these these people are 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 trying to kill grandma," um, don't 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 ever you know, endorse their ideas, a lot of scientists stayed silent because they were afraid for, for their for their ability to do their scientific work and for their social position within science. This is one of the crucial dynamics actually deployed by the powerful today. And I, I, I think that they've, um, they've really mastered this, uh, this technique in the last few years, which is just to make the social and professional cost of dissent uh, as high as possible and and you do that by picking out a few scapegoats and and, and really um wrecking things for them i, I we see that all over british politics and uh, I'm, I'm speaking to the the, the corbynistas in our uh, in our listenership there uh we've seen it um in the very novel way that consent has been manufactured for foreign policy decisions since uh, the russian invasion of ukraine that that uh, just Le a level of, of debate and a level of normal disagreement, even if you knew that you were going to be ignored, there wasn't this same social cost for um, an, an highly moralized kind of um, a, a, a deployment against you for, for speaking out. So I, I think that that story is actually um, a crucial one for all kinds of areas today, even outside um, academia and even outside um, uh, 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 pandemics and, and medicine. Um, I, I'm curious about what people, people who have bought the uh, the smear campaign and have bought into the idea that uh, you and, and and Martin and Sinetra are somehow rogue agents. What what do I, I, I guess you could sort of drive yourself crazy racking your brains of, uh, about this or trying to get into the psychology about this when you're on the receiving end of it. But what do they think your motives are? Why do they think that you are trying to stop people having these vaccines if they're if they're so great? Why do they think that you uh, were trying to stop us being in lockdown if uh, if you know in your heart that actually it was the right thing to do? I, I mean, the, the the accusation that you're actually lying has been has been a kind of a big part of this that you're not merely mistaken, which you could you could presumably 
be okay with people thinking, but the idea that you were specifically lying. Why do they think you were lying? I mean, there's this very paranoid sort of of, of counter-argument that that, that that has to come up with anything, right? So I've, I've taken zero dollars for my COVID work. I've done a, a very large number of expert witness cases, anti-mask mandate, anti-vaccine mandate, anti-lockdown cases, and I, t I did it all pro bono. I've taken no honoraria despite speaking, I don't know, basically everywhere uh, outside of Stanford on on, on, on COVID policy. I, 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 I feel morally wrong to take money to, to benefit off of this pandemic, and I haven't. And yet, the British Medical Journal published a piece somehow accusing me of, of being in the pay of the Koch brothers um, because of because of my anti-lockdown advocacy. As best I can tell, the Koch brothers were, if, if not in favor of, I mean, indifferent to lockdown, certainly they, they, they funded Neil Ferguson's group. Yeah. I mean, so I, I just, I don't, I, it's people, when they can't actually come up with a real counter argument, often grasp at straws about motivations. And the word you use, scapegoating, is exactly the right word. Uh, the, the, there's almost this, this uh, it's, not, it's no longer a matter of thinking. It's a matter of, of, of moralized uh, 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 position taking, right? So you have, um, you have uh, people who think that it's morally wrong to oppose lockdown because it's the only way to save lives. Anyone who opposes them is ipso facto immoral. And therefore, can be subject to any calumny, whether it's whether it's whether it's true or false, uh, and qu questioning motives, even coming bringing up false, uh, f you know, false, you know, you know, essentially slander to to try, try to impugn motives. I mean, that's a much easier way to, to 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 destroy somebody or to destroy someone's argument than actually countering the argument with with evidence or data. Um, you know, I think Noam Chomsky once wrote about uh, about this this manufacturing of consensus. Um, this is the way it happens, right? It happens by uh, by people uh, who should know better, that that have tremendous power, abusing that power to to, to destroy the people that disagree with them. Um, liberal societies can't function that way. Liberal societies require the ability for people who are not in power to, to speak, um, and when and and for sometimes when they're right for the for that for that to. Uh, th those points to be taken into account through, through, through some process, whether democratic processes or by scientific or scientific processes or whatever, um, for the for for the minority voices to be heard um, and sometimes sometimes listened to because they're right. Um, what happened during the pandemic was the it was not anywhere near that norm. Um, what happened during the pandemic was very powerful people used their power to silence people that were inconvenient to them simply for the simply because they contradicted them. And they moralized COVID policy. They moralized COVID itself. Somehow, getting COVID turned out to be turned, turned into a sin. Uh, somehow, yes. not getting, uh, not 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 wearing a mask turned out to be a, an act, a, a, an unethical act. Uh, you know, public health should never. I mean, in public health, I thought that the idea was we'd never moralize disease, but we moralized every single aspect of this to the detriment of policy. It's been very interesting uh, watching what's going on in North American universities uh, from the other side of the Atlantic, uh, where it, it, it seems that the, the more elite the school, the more stringent the COVID policies, almost as if it's become a, a sort of distinction marker in itself, that, that how, how do you, like, 
you know, centuries ago, you showed that you were high status by the fact that you could uh, you could sleep with all of the girls in the village, you could uh, uh, steal with impunity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Today, you show that you're high status by having more rules placed on you and more. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, you, yeah, you, you so uh, whatever at, at Ivy League colleges, you know, the last to leave online learning still having masks still forbidding students from going into restaurants in 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 the town etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I wondered how you've sort of experienced that that side of things i mean you're, you're famous for uh, the vitriol you receive in the in the public sphere but we we live in a time when students uh for for, for good and for for ill feel very confident about challenging um, the people who teach them especially on social issues i i, I wondered if you had any um tensions inside Stanford of that kind? Uh, not from students. Uh, students that mm -hmm. I've taught during the pandemic have been very respectful. Um, I mean, I teach a, a, a health economics course, and that's got, that's gone off really well a few times, uh, well, like three times I've taught it. Um, uh, it's the same with a, a, the supplied econometrics course. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen from students that kind of disrespect. Although I have to just say for students that, that, that want to challenge ideas i'm very welcome to that i mean i i actually enjoy it when students correct me and they, they they teach me something i actually i think that's i think it's all to the good um but the but stanford itself has been a hostile work environment <clears throat> it's been very difficult to uh to speak up at, within stanford uh at one point during the pandemic so i i, I uh, governor DeSantis of florida had me on a scientific roundtable uh, where he asked me whether there was any evidence that masking children had any large effect on the spread of the disease. And I told him a scientific fact, which is that there are no randomized studies that demonstrate that, no high quality studies, in my opinion, that demonstrate that, that masking children has any effect on the disease spread. Um, I said this in, in to him, uh, it was videotaped, it, uh, and then that videotape then was put on YouTube by some TV station. YouTube then pulled the video down, censored it, you know, a sitting governor of a major state talking to scientific advisors, apparently YouTube deemed it too dangerous for the public to hear about. This March, 2021. Um, a few months later, a hundred of my colleagues wrote a petition, signed a petition, a secret petition that they circulated, circulated by the chair of the Department of Epidemiology um, at Stanford to a hundred of my colleagues who signed the letter with essentially uh, accusing me of misinformation, asking the president of the university essentially to censor me. Um, there was a poster campaign around campus putting my face up uh, on, on kiosks, effectively accusing me of killing people in Florida uh, because of because of my advice to, to, to not lock down, uh, to, to open schools. You know, Florida has lower all-cause uh, mortality through the whole pandemic than California, which locked down. Um, so, you, so you have these, like, uh, attempts to, to essentially physically intimidate me morally intimidate me on campus and then at the same time i've yeah, given i've been teaching at stanford for 20 some years uh, i've been a student for and then professor for 36 years at stanford uh, i've given hundreds of talks at stanford not one time during the pandemic was i per permitted a, a, a stage to say what my views were regarding lockdowns even though i'm having you know people around the world are trying to I, I get to hear my views people at stanford they won't platform me it was a you know, there's two kinds of academic freedom. There's negative academic freedom and positive. Negative academic freedom means I didn't get fired because of my uh, my views on COVID. In that sense, Stanford protected my academic freedom. But in the broader sense of 
of the paneling uh, people who have ideas that are different than the norm that that that, that have that on the most challenging important parts of the day. So to, to panel debates on that, to panel panel discussions, Stanford failed. It decided that only one view was worth impaneling, one view was worth pushing, and you could see it in the policies they adopted toward the students. You know, uh, when the, the students first came back after the most severe lockdowns, the graduate students were only allowed to have one person that they were allowed to to to, uh, to be in company with. And if they're seen out a company of other people, they could get in trouble. They they mandated vaccines for and boosters for uh, the, the they mandated vaccines for and uh, boosters for young people. Um, even young men, even after the evidence that there's high rates of myocarditis came out about it. Uh, I don't really understand how a great university like Stanford lost its way so badly, but it definitely did. It's been a sort of excruciating um, uh, falling on the sword of the, of the, on the part of the whole professional class, really. The, the first thing that we saw was um, every, like every kind of expert sort of dropping their own area of advocacy in order to be seen to be compliant on the one issue of COVID. I, I mean, to Toby Green, a, a friend of the show, speaks very uh, passionately about th these charities who were dedicated to stopping child marriage in, in Africa and how, despite the fact that obviously locking down and, and getting uh, uh, girls out of schools and out of education was going to involve a, a, an expansion and, and, a, and a, a massive setback in child marriage. And, and sure enough, it happened. But those charities were silent. Similarly, educationalists sort of saying, oh, no, home learning's fine or online learning's fine, uh, and, and basically abandoning their entire kind of career commitment to, to good education. Uh, and then the sort of next phase of it seemed to be yeah, a, a kind of uh, the fact that you're, you're, you're describing your fellow academics petitioning the principal to censor you. That, that is just a, a total suspension of the kind of whole idea of what the job was meant to be and, and what the institution was meant to be. So I, I think there has been a really kind of dreadful psychological and institutional effect of all this on, on, the, uh, on the professional class in general. The whole mentality uh, has got out the window and, and it might, might actually be impossible to repair. I mean, uh, so I have a PhD in economics in addition to my MD. Um, economists, what do we do? We have we literally we have one job, really. I mean, it's to mm -hmm. like say there are costs when it's politically inconvenient to say there are costs. You know, I mean, like there's always there's always a cost to any policy of note. Um, you may still want to adopt the policy if, if the benefits outweigh the cost, but at least you should know that there are costs. That's our yeah. job as economists, is to you, say you need an advocate for the you know for explaining what the costs are. You need someone who, like, who knows that is their task, not to be good, but to say what the costs are. Exactly right, and so this is why we're, economists tend to be unpopular. We are saying co well, that here that here their costs of sometimes popular positions or popular uh, uh, things, not because we want don't don't want those things to happen. It's just we want to acknowledge it. and some and the reason is not just to be difficult, but because sometimes. By acknowledging the cost, you can think of ways to mitigate them. Um, so, so, but economists didn't do that, and especially early in the pandemic. They, economists as a whole—I mean, there are some exceptions, which are, which are I'm really grateful for. But, the, but economists as a whole, um, the profession as a whole, did not stand up and say there are some costs to lockdowns we really should be thinking about at the critical moment when you started locking down.
In fact, economists try, often were the most biggest cheerleaders of, of, of lockdown. Um, it's a tremendous failure of a profession whose professional obligation is to be skeptical about, uh, about policies of that scale, especially novel ones that have never been tested before. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to get you on to um, the uh, the Twitter case, which you've been you've been speaking about a lot, and and you've been uh, in demand to speak about. But I, I think it does it does connect quite um, intriguingly to what we're describing here. J just at the time that your fellow academics at Stanford were were uh, petitioning you, their fellow professor, uh, to be censored behind closed doors over at. Twitter, uh, essentially a, a, a monopoly media company. This is the place where every journalist is, every media person is, every professional is supposed to kind of have some kind of presence. And this is the sort of uh, the, the cookhouse of, of, of debate. Uh, what you read on Twitter this week will be the op-eds of, of next week. Uh, you were, the day you joined Twitter, you were silently blacklisted, downgraded in the algorithm and silenced by these elite employees in this social media company uh, who were taking these decisions of what the public uh, deserves to hear or can stand to hear into their own hands. You, you're um, involved in this, uh, in this very fascinating law case. Uh, our episode with Janine Yunus goes into uh, a detail on it and um obviously that this kind of very chaotic takeover of twitter by elon musk has thrown out some very intriguing and revealing um evidence for for what actually was going on and how far twitter was working at the behest of the democratic party and subsequently the biden administration in in making these uh, uh sent uh, making the censorship uh, on the platform um so uh, uh yeah, I mean, what what do you think the the kind of hard hard lessons really are for this, and how does how has it changed your view of what went on in all those debates where it seemed sometimes so hard to get traction for your ideas? Yeah, so what what Twitter did when I joined the the day I joined Twitter, I was put on a trends blacklist. Uh, just so the audience knows exactly what that is, uh, at least my understanding of what that is, um, I could tweet, and the people that followed me. Can, could see the tweet, right? So when I joined Twitter, my my follower count went up uh, pretty pretty sharply. I, I mean, eventually garnering about you know two hundred thousand followers. It sounds like a lot of followers, which is a lot of followers. Um, uh, but mainly, I think because people have heard of me outside of Twitter and they they follow me for that. Um, they could see my tweets. The people that followed me. The problem was that my tweets never went outside of my network. Hmm. So it was like I was speaking to an echo chamber. Right, I could, I, the, the people that, that, that follow me could see my tweets, but the broader public could not see my tweets um, because they, they weren't allowed to trend. Uh, the, the, the purpose then was to reduce the, 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 the size of my megaphone, motion, which naturally, absent the blacklist, would have been much larger within Twitter itself. And as you say, so many journalists are on Twitter. Uh, so much of the world's media is on Twitter. Uh, they're getting, they're they're hearing the, the the COVID maximalists, but they're not hearing the the scientific voices against the the, the lockdowns, be, just because of this policy. Now, the key thing, and you brought this up, James, is really important. I don't believe Twitter did this on their own. I don't think that some intern at Twitter decided, okay, as soon as JJ joins, I'm going to put him on a trends blacklist. This happened as a consequence of the government's policy 
to censor what they call misinformation, but what's what actually true information about about COVID. Um, and the GBD, the the, the, I, I, the first thing I did when I joined Twitter was one of the first things I did is I, I put a link to the GBD, the Great Barrington Declaration, arguing against lockdowns in favor of focused protection. I think that's what triggered the trends blacklist. Um, mm. And you know, if you look at that that legal case that you mentioned with uh, the, uh, with your with your guest Janine Yunus, my friend Janine Yunus, um, that legal case is was brought by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General and the New Civil Liberties Alliance against the Biden administration. It's uncovered a vast censorship effort by the Biden administration, uh, where they use their links to media to big tech to suppress dissent about. Uh, oh, the, the, this expression of dissent about lockdowns and many other policies that they that they, they they were in favor of, in the name of suppressing misinformation, when in fact what they were doing was suppressing true information about the harms of lockdowns, about the the inability of the vaccine to stop the disease spread, and and, and so much else, um, natural immunity, so on, and so much else. They, I, I believe that that Twitter was responding to requests by official government sources to uh, in placing this trans blacklist i wasn't alone by the way i mean martin martin Kulderf, turns out had he didn't currently have a trans blacklist uh when when barry weiss wrote that piece but had had a history of of being put on trans blacklist throughout the pandemic um yeah it's just, it's 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 remarkable i think that so many organs and you got you called it a monopoly position i agree with that it's a it's essentially these these powerful uh uh powerful companies governments use their their uh, abuse their power to make sure that people thought that only crazy people disagreed with the lockdowns when um your name was uh, was released in the the twitter files leaks uh, you you were kind of the only figure uh, at least in in that thread that Barry Weiss was uh, was tweeting out um who was not a a kind of right-wing activist or, or media personality. When when it when it came to your name, that was the point at which I realised, okay, this goes a hell of a lot deeper than just like a kind of whatever culture of wokeness in Twitter's offices, etc. The fact that they, they were comfortable going after you and they felt that impunity in going after you, or as as you say, and as we're we're finding out, had, had been instructed to go after you. Um, I'm wondering where Elon Musk sort of fits in this. I mean, he immediately, as I understand it, invited you to Twitter's offices to have a, a, a meeting and to discuss the fact that this had happened. And, and I, I think that you were kind of being singled out there because, yeah, okay, we can understand how it happened with those uh, with those right wingers. But but you you're a Stanford professor. What what the hell was going on? Um, I mean, e Elon Musk was not particularly against lockdown during COVID, was he? And also, I mean, like every billionaire and like every extremely rich person, he did personally pretty well out of it. It, it was an enormously regressive uh, transferable of, of, of wealth upwards uh, uh, by, all, um, by all accounts. Why is Elon Musk interested in you now? And why is Elon Musk interested in this? Uh, so I mean, he he, uh, I did get invited uh, to Twitter headquarters, and I met with Elon Musk for it. He gave me a full hour of his time. I was I was mm -hmm. uh, I mean I was actually quite touched by that because uh, you know his time is quite valuable. Um, he made a joke about 
why about you know he could have he could have spent the 44 billion dollars buying a private island <laughs> um it, it would have spared him a lot of headache um i mean I, I, he, my sense from talking with him is that he is offended by the censorship regime mm-hmm. that he's that he he sincerely wants the restoration of free speech in our societies and that in his view and, and I, which i agree with that twitter plays a tremendously important role in that censorship regime and also has the potential to play a tremendously important role in the restoration of free speech. That's why he spent that $44 billion. He was there, uh, I mean, I met with him at Saturday evening uh, at 8 p.m. And uh, the, the Twitter engineers I spoke with said that he's, you know, he was gonna be there till 3 a.m. that night. Um, that, that was routine. They, they're, they're, he's working hard, at least then was working very hard as still as I think to keep Twitter functioning and, and turn it into a better place. I think he sincerely wants uh, a restoration of free speech. We actually also spoke about lockdowns uh, for during that time. Hmm. Uh, it turns out actually he was against lockdowns for much of the pandemic. He moved his Tesla factory famously from California to Texas so that it could stay open. Um, and he viewed uh, uh, you know many other billionaires as being effectively germaphobes in the response, and he he was puzzled by it. Um, he I think he was against lockdowns actually. Uh, you know you know he's not a he's a he's a he's a fantastic engineer and an entrepreneur, not a not an epidemiologist. But my sense is that he had a better sense of the of the harms of lockdowns on 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 his workers, on regular people than the than the than the typical uh, person who just went along with the lockdowns. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a I have a lot at this point a lot of admiration for him. I, uh, for for having done this, he didn't need to. He didn't need to do this. He didn't need to step in the breach and and buy Twitter to try to open open things up. But the fact that he did, I think, has is actually allowed us to finally have an honest conversation about this sort of untrammeled power abused by by governments and and, and media companies. Yeah, well, I mean, what, whatever his motives, and and there are there are many interpretations. You you at least have met him for an hour, and uh, and and it's very interesting to to get those personal impressions uh, of of the guy. But with whatever motive, I, I I think that this is a very constructive kind of chaos that's going on now, and quite a lot of um, quite a lot of stuff that we felt like was going on, or or, or had the instinct was going on, is now being confirmed and quite a lot of the stuff that would get you called a, a crank and a conspiracy theorist until pretty recently is uh is today's bread and butter truth well jay Bhattacharya, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the popular show we can't thank you enough for uh, giving us an hour of your time uh and um yeah it, it's great to uh to, to catch up on these arguments and um and we continue as you continue to uh, to to you know not let these uh, these things be forgotten and and to you know be prepared for precisely the next time that they try to spring them on us. James, we're going to win this because we we actually had the better of the argument. We actually had better evidence, and the harms from the lockdowns to the poor, the working class, to children—it's too impossible. It's impossible to ignore, and it was unnecessary. That's why we're going to win this. We have to just keep. Uh, Keep advocating calmly. Uh, keep bringing the evidence in front of people, and and eventually, and very soon, I hope. Um, uh, I mean, uh, the tide has already turned, but uh, but we we are going to win the the, the the historical fight. And the reason to do that is so that we never do this again. And thank you for having me on.